Charles Spurgeon said these very sobering words. Listen very carefully, he said, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. You can be sure of that. Let me repeat that. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. You can be sure of that. Was he saying you should evangelize to be saved? No, he was saying, if you are saved, then you will evangelize. It's like this. What would you think of a man who read a book when a child drowned beside him? Say, hey man, say that child! This is not my kid, this is a good book. If someone could say that, they've got a heart of stone. They have a legal and a moral obligation to reach out and save that child if it's within his ability to do so. And I don't know how multitudes can sit and read the book and not be concerned with something like 150,000 people being swallowed every day by the jaws of death. You see, love cannot sit in passivity while the child drowns, and love cannot sit super deep going to a pew while sinners sink in the hell. The only criteria you have of knowing if you're saved is fruit. That's the biblical criteria, and hitting up the fruit is love. And the scriptures say, he that loves not knows not God, for God is love. The scriptures exhort us, examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. It's also James Smith who said, Oh my friends, we are loaded down with countless church activities. While the real work of the church, that of evangelizing the winning lost, is almost entirely neglected. It's like this. People would say, Well, God just wants us to worship him, for he seeks such to worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, how does God seek such to worship him? Through evangelism, if you really care about the glory of God, you want multitudes to come to the kingdom to glorify his name. Like this. The crews say they love their captain. They sing songs about their captain. They esteem him. They adore him. They're out to sea. The captain says, hey, brother, the sunken promise. Keep on drowning. Let down the lifeboats. But instead of obeying what he says, they say, oh, glory to the captain. Did you hear his voice? Isn't he wonderful? Now, if they love him, they'll do what he says. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I tell you? The body of Christ is not a pleasure cruiser on its way to heaven, but a battleship station of the very gates of hell. Now, how many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Okay, most people. For those who don't know of Charles Spurgeon, he was a great preacher about a hundred years ago in England. He was so eloquent in his words. He would say things like, you put your fingers on the forms of conscience as you try to pluck the rose of sin. He had a vocabulary of something like 25 and a half thousand words. Shakespeare had about the same. Your average is about 13,000 words. What I would like to do today is share with you a quote from the great intellectual C.H. Spurgeon. I want you to see if you can receive what Spurgeon is trying to say. So listen very carefully to this great intellectual. Squeeze the force of the sponge between your ears and concentrate. This is what Spurgeon said. Brethren, do something, do something, do something. Now can you perceive? Are you able to understand? Can you comprehend what this man is trying to say to us? I'll read it again for those who are little slow. But then I'll give you the whole point. Brethren, do something, do something. Do something. While societies and unions are making constitutions, let us win souls. I pray you be men of action all of you. Get to work and quit yourselves like men. Old sir, I dear, more 
Thank you. 
put down an overseas police speaker or a police walk band, but still, very few criminals will visit the police station. The whole idea of fewer policemen and businesses down, you go out and apprehend the freedom. And that's the principle of Christianity. Go into the world, preach the gospel. Others say with fear coming in from the fire, Paul's going to be apprehended of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm originally from New Zealand, even though I've lost my accent to be here so long. In New Zealand, there's something, something like 70 million sheep with 3 million people. There's a lot of sheep. They're not sure the exact amount because the guy that counts them keeps falling to sleep. But there are a lot of sheep. Just let it go. Let it go. There's a lot of sheep. And I think I speak with some sort of authority. Isn't it true that sheep have lambs? I object to hear the shepherd having a lamb. Did you hear the shepherd having a lamb? Same applies to the flock of God. Don't look to your pastor, the shepherd of your flock, to reproduce. Look to the sheep themselves. That's the principle of evangelism. Reproduction. I said to a shepherd once, what do you do if your sheep don't reproduce? He said, well, I give them a season and then cut their throat. Thanks, there's a sermon there somewhere. So, if we're going to be a successful army, we must know our objectives. We're here primarily to seek and save that which is lost. We're like the doctor with a cure cancer, walking through a cancer war. We cannot not speak that which we've seen and heard. Let nothing take away that clear mandate that God has given you. Though the old world preach the gospel every creature, there's only two times we should be preaching in season and out of season. No other time. Secondly, an army must know its weapons. Weapons of warfare not common, but mighty through God to the point down strongholds. And Paul says, above all, taking the shield of faith. So learn to use faith objectively. Don't live by a subject of faith. When you say, hey, how you doing? I say, oh, praise the Lord, things are going good. That must be joy. Well, if you rejoice because things are going good, when things go bad, you lose your joy. Jesus said, rejoice not, because demons are subject to you, but rejoice because your name is written in heaven. If you make heaven the object of your rejoicing, no one will take your joy from you. When things are good, you can rejoice because your name is written in heaven. And on the day of judgment, when the books are open by the grace of God, your name is there. When things are going bad, you can rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Make heaven the object of your rejoicing, and no one will take your joy from you and the joy of the Lord to spread. Secondly, an army marches on its stomach. I want you to be real honest with me, but if you read the Bible every day without fail, look up your hand, don't look at this yet. Think before you put the arm in action. If you read the Bible every day without fail, you're a disciple of Christ. You continue on the word of Christ to esteem the words of his mouth more than the necessary food. If you read the Bible every day without fail, look up your hand, I said,
one man to a woman, while the woman turned to the man and said, What about rain? I thought to myself, hmm. And he looked back and says, Yeah, rain, the devious one. Had a wonderful time to play that night, too. If you want to transform your play life, I have a key for you. If you go pen and paper, get ready to write this down. This is a wonderful, wonderful key. Jesus rose a great while before David seek the Father in prayer. If you want your life transformed, here is the key. Go to bed early. You say what? Go to bed early? Hello, kid with a blanket teddy bear. Well, if you begin getting up 4.35 o'clock, 3.00 o'clock, you're glad to go to bed at 9.30. Just to change your lifestyle. So the problem with most of us is that we are involved in the battle. The name of the battle is the battle of the blanket. The blanket says, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to take the blanket captive. Wrap around yourself and sit down and pray. So if you get hold of my wallet, and I don't know what you can do with my wallet, but if you open it up, you'll see a picture of me. That's quite a nice picture, right? And I don't need my father to stop my name. I'm going to stop the Department of Eternal Affairs, Ambassador. And we're ambassadors for the Department of Eternal Affairs. I was in Calvary Airport to get a ticket with me out. I put this down for one about it. The guy says, are you from the State Department? I said, no, the Department of Eternal Affairs. Do you know the Lord? He says, no, but he does. So we are ambassadors from the Department of Eternal Affairs. And if you choose an ambassador for your country, country, you have to choose a man with tremendous discretion. A woman with tremendous discretion, because their words can start a war. As ambassadors for Christ, our words can start a war. Through faith in the name of Jesus, the Bible says we can boldly come before the throne of grace and ask what we will. By the grace of God, we can govern the destiny of nations. Listen to what Hudson Taylor said, the great prayer He said, the prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. He said, if we, we want to see mighty wonders of divine power more in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, he said, let us answer God's standing challenge, call on to me, I'll answer you, and show you great and mighty things which you know not all. The church is never going to speak. must first get on its knees. John Bunyan said, prayer is a shield of the soul, of the light to God, and a scourge to Satan. But let me qualify prayer. Let me know I believe in prayer, but what I said. But if you're the sort of person that prays but doesn't witness, like the majority of the church in the U.S., we can see something's radically wrong in the U.S. Something's going wrong in this nation. 300% increase in cancer in the last 10 years. Hurricanes lining up on the East Coast for their turn. Three months of forest fires on the West Coast. Nothing to put about what stops the fires, lightning from heaven. I mean, we're losing God's blessing in that sense. It's got a little sign. So most Christians say, yeah, something's not going right, we've got to pray. And many are praying for a sovereign move of God. They say, oh God, pour out your Holy Spirit, move sovereignly by your Spirit. But if we pray that, but don't witness about faith, this is what we pray. Oh God, we know your word says, go to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, but we'll stay here and pray. We know the gospel is the power of God to salvation, but we'll stay here and pray. We know your word says, how shall we hear? Without preaching, but we'll stay here and pray. 
scripture says, who tells and the foolish is a preacher, to save them that believe, but we'll stay here and pray because it sure is easier to talk to God about men than to talk to men about God. And what we've got to stop saying is, here I am, Lord, send him. And say, here I am, Lord, send me to put lids on our prayers. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Now Martin was a monk, and he had plenty of time to spend three hours in prayer. But when you see the spirit of what he's saying, it's like this. I'm chopping out a tree with one axe. I'm getting nowhere, swift towards my ground. He woke up and said, what are you doing? I said, oh, talk to me, I'm chopping down this tree. He said, the X is one, why don't you stop and chop in the X? I said, I haven't got time to stop and chop in the X, I'm chopping down this tree. What about you stop and chop in the X, I'll slice you between the grains. He says, whatever you have to do each day, stop each morning, chop in the X through prayer, and you'll slice through the day with grains. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we're looking very briefly at three keys to army success. Firstly, we must know objectives, the other seeking to save that which is lost. Secondly, we must know weapons, the world, faith, our prayer. And thirdly, thirdly, we must know the enemy. Now, in an actual battle, we'd send out reconnaissance to find the strengths and the weaknesses of the enemy. We don't need to do that. God has given us a comprehensive war manual in this world. And we can see we have a threefold enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now the way to deal with our enemies is to deal with the number one enemy, that is, the flesh. Now, if we can just once and for all crucify that flesh, then the world will have no attraction to us, and the devil will have no foothold upon us. The Apostle Paul said, I know the enemy dwells no good thing. In a sense, that no good thing is the Judas of the old nature, that Judas who will cry master, master, and then betray the Son of God with a kiss. And listen, friends, Judas will only live as much as you feel. Be so careful, young people, what you look at and what you listen to, because so much of it from the world is designed to stir up lust. And what is lust? It's the deliberate stirring of the sexual desire, and when the sexual desire is inflamed, you wonder where your tender conscience went to. Treat your conscience as you would a good referee. When the referee of conscience blows the whistle, stop the game. There's been an infringement of rules. But don't be surprised if the referee walks off the field if his whistle is continually ignored. You can forsake the guy that you do. You can share your conscience as you go on. So you can do things today you couldn't do a month ago and feel peaceful about it. All this happened is you've seared your conscience. Man, get upon yourself the legs of Joseph. The scriptures say, Flee fornication. In fact, they say, by the means of a foolish woman, a man is born to a piece of bread. What does that mean? Well, if I see a piece of bread in front of me and I want to eat it, I just pick it up and chew it up. And the scriptures say, by the means of a loose or a foolish woman, a man is born to a piece of bread. There is no resistance. Just pick him up, chew him up, devour him. And you see this in the life of David. Now, David, instead of being in a new battle, was up with a wandering eye. And when you read the incident, you think, David, what are you, blind or something? You're the shepherd of Israel. God delivered Israel through your hand with a mighty miracle. And you're walking right into the devil's trap. Are you blind, David? I think I know what happened with King David. For years, I had something that really bugged me. It's 
probably right back on his little kid, seven years old, approximately. I'm lying on bed at night, and I was thinking, I'd be thinking, while I'm gonna go to sleep in a minute, I can feel the sleeping process coming on, and I'm gonna actually witness myself go to sleep. I'm gonna see the eyelids come down, and in the morning, I'll remember the very second I went to sleep. I wake up in the morning and say, ah, listen, that's been happening for about 37 years. Never once have I witnessed myself go to sleep. Sometimes I'll sit watching this black and white movie with my wife on television. It's quite enjoying it, and suddenly I went, Bleh! She says, you've been asleep for 20 minutes. I said, I have not. She said, yes, you have. I thought, ah, it happened again. And suddenly, light from heaven penetrated this dull brain, and I began to understand what happens in the sleeping process. When you go to sleep, your brain goes to sleep, shuts down, and splits it before the eyes close, the same as when you turn your computer off at the wall. And that's why multitudes, literally thousands, have died and will die when they're driving their car at night. They don't hold a wheel, they can only have a control. They say not if they're real tired, but I'm in control. If I get real tired, I'll pull over and rest. It's the last thought they have. Because they don't understand, the sleeping process doesn't happen with the eye, it happens with the brain. And exactly the same happens with sexual sin. The brain shuts down. A man says, hey! I don't hold the wheels of my passions. I don't look upon that woman. But the Bible says lust brings forth sin. And you walk right into the devil's trap like a blind man. Now why am I being explicit like this? Well, because of this. Christianity Today. An evangelistic magazine, Wallow Magazine, had a survey some years ago. Among 300 pastors, and they found that 23% admitted that they in some sort of sexual sin. That's nearly one in four pastors who suddenly honest enough to admit they're involved in some sort of sexual sin. But that's the state of the pulpits. That's what must be the state of the pews. The Dallas Paul University campuses found among those who call themselves evangelicals, 50% thought there was nothing wrong with premarital sex for a Christian. Now I don't know what Bible way you read, if any, but my Bible says fornicators shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Turn with your word very quickly to Acts chapter 6. Now when I speak of Jews being alive and alive beneath the place, what I'm actually speaking of is something we don't hear much of from pulpits, and that is teaching on true and false conversion. The Bible is very, very clear there is such a thing as a false convert. Paul twice speaks of false brethren. We hear false teachers, false apostles. We hear stony ground here, holy ground here, false conversions. The Bible exhorts, examine yourself and see if you be in the faith. And says, on the day of judgment, multitudes, many Jesus said, will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart, and you'll work of iniquity I never knew. So what we're going to do is look at this scripture. It will help us see if we are part of that great company that will be thrust from the doors of heaven into the jaws of hell. X. Stephen, that great soldier of Christ, is giving his farewell speech to those who are about to promote him to headquarters. He's speaking of Israel's attitude to God in the wilderness, and he says this, To thy fathers would not obey, but trust him from them, and in their hearts turn back into Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, as was Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, what must become of him? And the men of Kyle from those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, 
and rejoice in the works of your own hands. So we have here three stages of Israel's backsliding. We know Moses is a type of Christ, the deliverer, and Egypt is a typology of the world. So in their hearts they turn back, oh sorry, yeah, in their hearts, they turn back again to Egypt. If you're a false convert, in your heart, you'll turn back to the world. There is a hidden desire for the sinful pleasures of the world. Friends don't know, pastor doesn't know, but believe me, you know and God knows. But in your heart, there is that burning passion for the sinful desires of the world. Second sign, as you lose your reality to walk with Jesus, as it was Jesus who walked out of the world, out of what's become of him. You say, oh, I love you, Jesus. Well, seem kind of corny to you. I mean, the Bible warns, if any man loves not, I know Jesus Christ, let him be an alpha. And the third sign, is you create for yourself an idol. You'll make a God to suit your sins. Now those we commonly call backsliders who never slipped forward in the first place. They're false converts. They don't read the word, they don't fellowship, but they certainly pray. In fact, over 90% of Americans pray daily, I think a statistic said I've heard recently. Who do they pray to? They pray to an idol. They create a God to suit their sins and then rejoice in the work of their own hands. They become self-righteous. Don't confess their sins, but they don't need to, because their God has no sense of right and wrong. It's just an idol, a non-existent idol that created to suit their sins. 1994, Bible Research Group found that one in four Americans who say they're born again think that Jesus Christ sinned while he was on the earth. They follow that line of theology. So there is something radically wrong with multitudes who profess faith in Jesus Christ. What's happened? is the church has lost the fear of God. In Isaiah 29, verse 13, where it says, this people draws near me with the lips, and it says, they teach the fear of them, which is a precept of man. They have their own conception of the fear of God, not a biblical understanding. Well, if you want to do yourself a great favor, cultivate the fear of God in your life. Just cultivate. You say, how do I do that? Well, Proverbs 2 tells you how to do that. Cry out to understand it. Wisdom, maybe we will fear the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Get rid of this concept that God loves everyone and has a wonderful plan for their lives. Give the impression that God is smiling at humanity. Only what he wants to do is lift your lifestyle. Give them more pleasure and happiness in life. Tell that to Stephen as he's being stoned to death. Now, the God of the Bible kills people. Genesis 38, God and Michael commanded sexually, so God killed them. God told Joshua, to kill every man, woman, child without mercy, and all his judgments are righteous and true together. Psalm 50, last verse, consider this, you forget God, this is God speaking. Least I tear your pieces, and then unto the other. Old Testament, New Testament, God killed a husband and wife because they told one lie. But instead of saying, oh God, why did you do that to them? We should be saying, oh God, why didn't you do that to me the first time I transgressed your law? Does it truly be rich in mercy? But often we don't say, oh, God is so good to me, and be humbled by his goodness and his mercy. Instead, we become emboldened in our sin and say the God of Jacob doesn't see, doesn't regard. So cultivate the fear of God in your life. Do yourself a great favor. Because the Bible says, through the fear of the Lord, men will depart from sin. If Judas is alive and well beneath that list, we must hang him by the neck until the very life is squeezed out of him. How do we do that? Closing scripture, Galatians 6, verse 14. Galatians 6, verse 14. 
congratulations that you must want to receive a key to successful, to victorious Christian living. For since God forbid that I should go on to save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I am the world. Christ on the cross is the key to crucifixion of that sinful nature. The following Psalm 1 saw the Cameron trip. As they pitch the tent, the father says, Son, see that river? There's four crocodiles. If you want to fish, fish off that wolf. The kid says, Okay, I'll fish off the wolf. Three days the kid fished off the wolf. He got kind of bored. I began thinking, you know, it's kind of exciting fishing on crocodiles. I'd be safe in a boat. So in a sense of the battle, we got a boat began fishing. The things were flying for a while until the crocodile came along and saw that boat. The straight tail hit the boat. The boat over turned. The kid screamed in terror. The father heard him scream. Without hesitation, Brian dropped the internet wall from the crocodile and fished the waters. Grabbed his beloved son and pulled him safe to the shore. When the son opened his eyes, he saw a terrible sight. The great crocodile got his jaws wrapped around the father's legs, leaving them from bleeding shreds. Now all I'm going to say is unthinkable. But imagine if that son turned to his father, who was lying there in agony, bleeding to death, and said this. Dad, you know, I really appreciate what you just did for me, but, you know, I found it kind of exciting in that boat fishing on crocodiles. You wouldn't want to get another boat and go to him with you, huh? But that kid could think such a thing, when I'm speaking. The blind fool hasn't seen the sacrifice of his father. And dear professing Christian, if you have any even hidden desire for the sinful pleasure of the world, you've never seen the sacrifice of the father. If that son is truly seeing what his father's just done for him, a sense of horror will consume him at the cost, the extreme, the length, the expense his father went to the Satan. He'll pour contempt upon the drops of water that still cling to his flesh. And the true penitent, the true convert, has seen the God in the person of Jesus Christ, without hesitation, died in the great jaws of hell to save him from the folly of his sin. A sense of horror consumes him. At the cost, extreme, length, expense, his father went to the Satan. He forced contempt upon the sinful desires that still cling to his flesh. He says with a hymnist, And when I think that God is somewhat sparing, sin of the God I scarce can take it in, but on that cross, my burden is gladly buried. He bled and died to take away my sin. You know, I guess the greatest thing that motivates me to run around always carrying tracks on me, looking like a fanatic, looking like a fool for Christ, is gratitude. Old-fashioned gratitude. Gratitude is like a fire in my bones because, what, 25 years ago, I suddenly saw myself in the light of God's will. I saw my own sinful heart and realized that God was to manifest the secret sins of my heart. That was no different than any other guy, just burning unlawful passion. But God could quit picking up his unclean thing and cast me into hell, but instead gave me to heaven. He took me out of the shadow of death and gave me everlasting life. And I, I think the understatement of eternity for me is, I'm so glad I'm a Christian. That phrase just doesn't cut. I mean, there's no words that I can express my gratitude, so I can't express it in words, I'm certainly going to express it in works. The gratitude is like a fire that motivates me continually to run away. I'm not kind of glory-eyed fanatic, but just say, hey, did you get one of these people? I say, hey, there's a track. Why don't you read this when you go to work? Don't say to people, would you like one of these? They'll say, no, well, why is it when you're in trouble? Say, did you get one of these? And they'll say, out of what? 
by your friends who stood up curiosity. It made the person feel they're missing out on something, so they'll take the track. But gratitude is the prime motivation for vandalism on our life. It was George Whitfield. He said, I had a day in my life when I fully surrendered in consecration to the Lord. And in that day, I said, I called heaven and earth to witness that I give myself entirely to be a martyr for him who hung on the cross for me. He said, I have thrown myself blindfolded and without reserve into his mighty hands. See, one thing, seeing the sacrifice of the Father, having no back to the excitement of sin. To do so, we have to trample the blood of his Father underfoot. No, he crucifies himself to the world and the world to himself. Nothing spiritual, this willful crucifixion, they who Christ have crucified flesh with his affections and lusts. Just as we close, there's a very interesting narrative I'm sure you're familiar with it's in two Gospels. It's a story of Joseph of Arimathea. Now Joseph of Arimathea was a man that I think we can identify with. He was a man who had problems with the fear of man. He preferred the praises of God, the praises of man, and the praises of God. He feared man more than he feared God because the Bible says that Joseph, he was a believer, but secretly for fear of the Jews. You see, Joseph down in the field was there when they crucified Jesus. He was there before the cross, the Bible tells you so. And I don't know what happened, but perhaps he heard the seven last sayings of Jesus. But something stirred within his soul, something snapped with his spiritual point, when this man increased in fear, suddenly hurled him with the pilot and craved the body of Christ. Joseph and Arimathea had the privilege, the honor, of taking the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, down from the cross of Calvary. Would you ever wonder what that would have been like in truth? To have to take hold of the hands of Jesus and rip them from six inch Roman bars, and the feet and tear them from those great long nails. And perhaps as Joseph took hold of the hand of Jesus, he thought to himself, These are the hands of the carpenter, which once held nails in wood, now being held by nails in wood. These are the hands that won't break the big multitudes. As he gazed through the lifeless eyes of the Son of God, perhaps he thought, these are the eyes which once danced in the very life of God, now being held in the icy grip of death. As he let those feet from the cross, perhaps he thought, these are the feet of him who walked the shores of Galilee, who walked the sea of Galilee, the beautiful feet of him who preached the gospel of peace. There was another man there that day, I mean, we can identify with, his name was Nicodemus. Three times in the gospel of God, it says Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, perhaps inferring that this man also had a problem with the fear of man. But something happened when those from the heart of Nicodemus as he stood before the cross, because he didn't care what those vultures, the Pharisees, thought, as they gazed upon the darkness. No, Bible tells us he helped Joseph take Jesus down from the cross. And perhaps as Nicodemus lifted up his hands to take hold of the Lamb of God, his hands were stained with the blood of the Lamb, and he was reminded of many times. He smoothed the spotless lamb without blemish for his own sins. But whatever the case, that cross needs to be as real for you and me as it was for Joseph and Arimathea and for Nicodemus. The true convert has seen Jesus Christ ever as set forth in the crucifixion. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest vein I count but loss. Poor content for all my pride, for good Lord, that I should both save in the death of Christ my God, all vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. 
See from his head his hands his feet solid and love mingled down. The air such love and soul meet for forms composed for which a crown. With a whole realm of nature mind, that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Which down plays the closure. Father, we thank you for such a glorious gospel. We thank you, for, Lord, for not leaving us in the shadow of death. But to them that sat in the shadow of death, a light has sprung up. We thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would lay upon us the burden that's upon your heart. We want to fill your heart. Father, we want to be concerned for the lost. We want to love a neighbor as ourselves. So this day we present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our reasonable service. We pray that you would give us a compassion that would swallow our fears, that you'd make us true and faithful witnesses, that you'd give us the words, the will, the wisdom, and the way to reach out to those that are around us and bring them to the kingdom of everlasting life, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Let me say that after this meeting over me is the student center, what it was called. We'll have a whole table open for about 10 or 15 minutes after this teaching. We'll practice it.